0: May all beings be happy, may all beings be healthy, may all beings be free from harm, may all beings love life, may all beings awaken. Welcome to another KUK Audio podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of KUK Audio and KUK Archives, preserving the legacy of Shunyu Suzuki and those whose paths cross his. And anything else that comes to mind... I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have the second consecutive podcast with guest Barry Crawford, and that's B-E-R-R-Y Crawford. Uh, and I have a friend named Barry in Fort Worth, and I looked up, you know, you can look up uh, how common a name is. Uh, B-A-R-R-Y is, I think, four times more common than B-E-R-R-Y. Uh, I think those are the only two B-E-R-R-Y berries that I can remember knowing. So uh, that's significant, right? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> last week... We talked about Barry's um, zen path and uh, his life and that sort of thing. And um, this week, uh, we're going to talk about uh, his um, delving into the science of zen. And uh, appropriately, he has um, a website called Getting a little closer to it here. Scienceofzen.org. Just wanted to make sure. And uh, we touch on, there's another one, and and we start off with it a little bit. The uh, Sierra Foothills Zen.com. And that's interesting. Uh, that's, um, you know, um, outward bound Zen sort of thing. Uh, that's really neat. I'd like to go do that with him. Uh, I don't know if I can get over there. Uh, and uh, But the science of Zen is very, very well thought out, and uh, he's put a lot into it, and um, I was really interested in it. Ever since we talked, I've been thinking about it now and then. It uh, gives a, a neat little frame of reference for, you know, what's going on in the head and You know, the understanding of stuff like that is always evolving, and I think he's pretty up-to-date with uh, what they're saying these days. Anyway, look, let's just go on and give him a call and uh, see what he has to say about all this. So uh, let's do that, though, after our pause to meditate. So when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause and meditate, or whatever, for as long as you wish, and when you're through, hit unpause, and we'll hit the bell to end the meditation, or whatever, and we'll give Barry Crawford a call. Hi Barry. Hi. How you doing?
1: Good. can you hear me well?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's hard to get a picture of you. You're modest. You know. Oh. To find a picture of you for the for the last podcast, uh, I had to go to your Facebook page, and there was only <laughs> one good. I could have taken you out of a group picture there. That photo
1: is probably fifteen years old.
0: <laughs> well, it looks pretty much like you look now. Um mm-hmm. but I'd suggest you put a picture of yourself on Simplicity Zen. People will want to okay. see you. Yeah, uh, you're right, you're right. Yeah. I mean I did. And you're a very handsome man, so Oh, I, I totally agree. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, um we had a a brief podcast. With you, mm-hmm. it was nice. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, just talked about your practice and your life and that. And I found it very interesting. Um, but, you know, I had noticed in uh, on Simplicity Zen, you had two other sites. Uh, mm-hmm. One, um, you know, your um, outdoors stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And Sierra, what's that called?
1: Uh, Sierra Foothouse Zen, Right.
0: Oh, Sierra Foothills Zen, yeah. Oh, well, wait. All right, I just want to ask you what. what I I haven't looked at it yet. I looked at the science site. What did What did Sierra Foothills Zen site?
1: Well, that started. Um, so in um, in the Clear Mind lineage where I got ordained, um, you know, it's very service oriented, and so it's, it's very what oriented service. Oh yeah. Okay. So as part of my training, I was expected to, you know, start a sitting group, or be a prison chaplain, or you know, a hospital chap, like some sort of service oriented like that. But it was right in the midst of um, of of the COVID pandemic, and so I, um, so what? So I started this kind of outdoor, you know, meditation program, and I do it through. There's a local. Um, nature conservancy organization called American river conservancy up here in the foothills. Mm-hmm. It's, a great, it's a great organization. I love it. But um, so I kind of partner with them where I use their land to offer these kind of, um, kind of mindfulness Zen things. Uh, initially it was just basically like a silent hike, but it's kind of morphed into where um, the first third of it we do, I do a little kind of like real basic um, Qigong, exercise, you know, I, I'm basically a Qigong novice, so, yeah. you know, and I, and I set those expectations. I don't pretend to be a, you know, a master teacher at it or anything, but, you know, just, I'd lead them through this, some real basic Qigong exercises I've been taught. And then we do, uh, then the second third of it is a silent hike through, you know, the foothills, um, rolling oak forest up here. And then the last third is we kind of set, sit facing this really picturesque lake, and I do like a kind of a guided um, meditation there. And so it's, um, um, you know, a lot of people just come for the nature or the Qigong, but, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, so it's not like traditional Soto Zen or anything, but it's, um, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of people originally came for the Qigong, but come to really like the meditation. Mm. So, uh, and mm. so, so even though it's kind of safer to sit inside now, it's been popular enough where I've just continued it.
0: Huh. So if somebody wants to um, participate that or learn more about it they write um, uh, they go online and go to sierrafoothillsin.org .com, D- dot com. this one's dot .com yeah sierrafoothillsin.com yeah yeah well that sounds neat that sounds neat yeah 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 that'd be good for me to do Yeah, it's fun.
1: It's, it's fun sitting outside you know, I set up some camping chairs, and then if the weather's nice, I'll set up some Zabutons and Zafu, and you can sit, you know, staring at this really
0: beautiful, picturesque lake. Wait a minute. You're hiking with Zabutons and Zafus?
1: No. it's a, So there's a there's a lake th- that we go around. Um, and oh. so, so we go left to hike around the lake, but I, but I go right to set up all the sitting areas. So it's really – so I have a wagon, so it's really – so I'm really only going about 100 feet
0: into the hike with all Oh, the yeah. City. I see. I see. Yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Now, uh, I I looked at your science of Zen dot. Yeah. Hey, before we dive into that, I, I did want to say
1: one thing. So I listened to our talk um, that you put up the other night. Yeah. And, and, um, and it made it sound like that I um, don't like socially engaged Zen. Um, and I wanted to, um, it, it, you know, I, w- I just want to qualify. I think like the point, my belief on the matter isn't that I don't think socially engaged um, Zen is worthwhile. My point is uh, I don't think it's great when a Zen center, that becomes the dominant practice, not that it shouldn't exist at all. You know? Yeah. So that and, and I won't name any names just because, you know, it would be awkward, but I mean, I think it's the minority of Zen centers that I think would
0: fall into that category. Um, fall into the category of, of, uh, of being overwhelmed by socially engaged. Yeah. Just,
1: it, it, you know, and, and I love like organizations like the, you know, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and stuff like that. So I'm not, I'm not against, yeah. a, against that kind of stuff. It, it's just more, you know, it's our time on this earth is so preciously short. I really like to see Zen centers really like laser focused on awakening specifically, you know, because there's, because there's so many other wonderful outlets for, you know, the very many other important things in life. I I like to see Zen centers kind of focused on that. And, but listening to it, I kind of cringed a little bit feeling like it sounded like I was just against it in general. And that's not the case.
0: I don't know. Uh, I'm feeling like you were just saying it was out of balance. I mean, Uh, Yeah, at certain places. Um, Yeah, yeah, I definitely feel that, and also, you know, uh, engaged Buddhism. You know what it was in Japan in uh, uh, in the first half of the last century? It was uh, putting Uh, the emperor above Buddha and sanctioning uh, uh, war uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, troops. uh, monks becoming soldiers, uh, mm-hmm. with the blessing of the organizations, so that was engaged mm-hmm. Buddhism. They were engaged. Right. That's yep. And and they fall in line there, you know. So um, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that engaged, I just say engaged Buddhism is. Um, Doing what you want to do in action uh, through a sort of uh, lens of uh, Buddhism with your understanding of it. Yeah.
1: I mean, the, the distinction I make for myself, and I'm not saying other people should follow this distinction, is I think where Zen really shines is in investigating how we or how, how I should behave, right? Yeah. What I'm less excited about is using Zen as a vehicle of telling other other people how they should behave.
0: Ooh, yeah, sense. good. Well, well said. Yeah. Well said. Yeah,
1: and 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 again, if someone disagrees with me, I mean that's fine. And I'm not like totally upset by it. But that's just the distinction. I I you know I yeah you know I don't I don't want to use my religion as a vehicle for trying to tell other people how they should you know how right. they should view the world or or live their lives. You know, right? I mean, there are other vehicles where I'm happy to tell people how they should live their lives and so forth. You know, I really, think, <laughs> I don't think, you know, but I just, but I like to keep that out of religion, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of engaged uh, Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically they're not telling other people how to live their lives. Uh, there's right. there's um, uh, communities of uh, uh Nuns and brothers and monks that are just mm. into good deeds, serving the poor, are so. I think if if engaged Buddhism is trying to relieve suffering, that that is um, of course a good thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like like our, I haven't been to any, any of our classes, but uh, the Soto sangha I sit with, you know, they they have some stuff where they. It's kind of like unpacking racism, but I kind of like their approach, how they handle it. They're talking about, like, what's your relationship to racism as opposed to, you know, here's what's wrong with racism and, just, you know, here, here's what other people should be doing. You know, I, I like, I, I like that approach, you
0: know. Yeah, yeah, I know when I see that, I think, oh, I don't want to go to one of those meetings. Uh, I like being here with people. There's all sorts of people, mainly dark people. <laughs> and I, most of my friends are dark skinned, and I really don't have to worry about it. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: sorry. Sorry about the tangent. I just, I just, um, I, just I, I felt a little cringy when I was listening to the interview. I'm like, oh boy, I hope people don't get the wrong idea of what I meant here.
0: Well, you can, you can, you know. You, you uh, did something nobody else has ever done, and I really appreciated it. You said, ooh, i got to cut out four seconds. I cut out four seconds from it. I really didn't want anybody to hear. And so here's the MP3. I did it. All I had to do was upload it. That was great. So if you want to go back and, and do that, mess with no, it. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah you can fine. stick it in, man. I do that sometimes. I come in. And uh, I just stick it in. I say, oh, you know, I have to listen to this. I want to make clear so-and-so um, mm-hmm. or something. So I don't care. Uh, yeah. Anyway, no, we're good. you know, I think I think that uh, subject uh, is it's like a third rail or something. You know, uh, people mm-hmm. are hesitant to talk about it. Uh, mm-hmm. There are certain things that it's just better not to get involved with, like mm-hmm. – uh, uh, oh, I think I won't mention them because I don't want to get involved. <laughs> so, can we move to science of Zen? Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. So, I tell it science of Zen, mm-hmm. uh, and um, mm, I'm I'm interested in what you have to say. I'm also interested in science, not mm-hmm. as a student of science, but as a um, uh, uh, I I would I would I'd rather have scientists running the world right now than anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But please tell us about the science of Zen dot which one?
1: Oh, dot org. That one's Science of Zen. Science .org. of dot org. Right, and so that that was actually another one of my kind of priest training service projects. Um, you know. I... I kind of did to, um, and so, so, you know, kind of at a fundamental level, I, you know, I've always been interested in science, you know, I, you know, I grew up, you know, I guess as an atheist. And so I, you know, even though I, you know, I've experienced things that are, you know, unequivocally like supernatural, I guess you could say. I still feel like a very, like my worldview is still largely science-based and, um, you know, or, you know, or at least rational, I'd like to think, you know, and, um, and, and if I'm totally honest, you know, my introduction to spirituality and practice was through psychedelics and, you know, and that is very much you know, chemicals, tickling neurotransmitters and creating some sort of process in the brain. And so even though, you know, I, I don't see psychedelics as a full path you know, or anything beyond more than like, you know, something's going on here. It's worth your time to, you know, investigate a spiritual path you know i don't i don't think psychedelics in and of themselves are a complete path at all you know and and, and obviously full of dangers on many levels however you know the fact that it was an introduction to me you know made me realize well there is definitely a neurobiological aspect to practice start with so i've always been favorably predisposed to you know kind of a, a scientific view of this type of stuff and you know and so I've been interested in Zen since, you know, the very early 90s. I think 91, 92 is my first year sitting. I think 92 is my first session. I can't remember. Maybe 91 was the first time I sat and saw Zen at all. But anyway, through so this whole time, I've always been interested in, you know, what's the science of meditation? What's the science of, of Zen and, you know, science of awakening and all this kind of stuff? And frankly, for the vast majority of that time, the science just wasn't there. You know, they... they You know, a lot of the stuff we understand kind of is the basis for it. um, Just they didn't even know it existed, let alone were they measuring it. And so it's really starting about 10 years ago, but even more so, you know, um, increasing in um, speed about four or five years ago, the sciences really started catching up to understanding kind of the neurological basis of practice. And, you know, and that's with a little bit of a caveat that um, what science is really good at explaining is kind of the the basis of dukkha, you know, the basis of suffering. What science is n- not anywhere close at all to explaining is the very existing of consciousness at all, you know. And so, you know, I, and, you know, I think a lot of people kind of see what i'm doing as like kind of an overly materialist type of thing and i've gotten that feedback a lot but i still think there's tons of mystery and you know i i'm not at all convinced that consciousness comes from neurological um, you know firing you know fundamentally I, if i had to guess you know i think consciousness is more like a a fundamental you know fact of the universe and it's just one of many resources that the brain makes use of you know to keep this kind of body mind alive in the world while I'm here you know kind of like you know the brain makes use of electricity it makes use of you know heat and thermodynamics right these are all dynamics of the universe that that the bo- you know that living organism can make use of and i think consciousness probably falls in that category too so anyway so with that caveat i, I want to say what the science is really good at explaining is um, kind of the neurological basis basis of self and why that neurological base of self kind of leads to suffering. And one thing that's really interesting um, that the science has shown is, you know, early on I kind of assumed that that there's some part of the brain, you know, that's like the spiritual like globe or something, right? And the scientists will discover like, oh, you know, you tickle that lobe and boom, you know, you have a non-dual experience or, or whatever, you know. And, you know, I, you know, I thought there was like machinery kind of built into the brain, you know, to produce mystical experiences. And what's really fascinated me, and, and, and in retrospect, it should have been obvious, is what they've discovered is not so much that there's machinery in the brain to produce mystical experiences or spiritual experiences or, or you know, kind of create a path to awakening it's more like when certain parts of the brain shut down or disengage that's when um that's when the magic happens so it's so it's it's not so much that you know the brain is designed for awakening it's when certain parts of the brain that kind of um create dukkha are down graded in their activity that's when um Interesting practice dynamics happen. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it. And, and, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I. I uh, basically uh, am just listening. Uh, yeah, I don't know what to think.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so do so you want me to monologue about this for a little bit, or do you have questions, or
0: explain what the science is? I mean, you've got you've got charts and stuff. I don't know if charts, right? You've got graphics on mm-hmm. your site, and you you mm-hmm. go into specifics. Mm-hmm. Um, um uh, you know, I the way I tend to see it is more like uh, uh, Hindu uh, Advaita Vedanta, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, that um, the the only ra- reality is awareness. And uh, everything else uh, is like a a dream. A a Ramana Maharshi called normal waking consciousness, dream one. And then Mm -hmm. when we sleep, dream two. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so I I sort of see it that way. And and, uh, Suzuki sort of talked about it. He didn't talk mm-hmm. about dreams that way, too. Yeah. But um, I think it's better to be grounded in the physical, and so did Suzuki, Junior uh, mm-hmm. Suzuki, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, grounded in nature, grounded in the physical. Uh, I'm really interested in what the science has to say. Uh, I really think it's it's best not to believe things that are you know you I, I think belief is sort of the inner enemy of mm-hmm. religious practice and you just experience things. but uh, uh, scientific approach isn't because it's not attached to the theory or the hypothesis. They're all can be challenged and they'll mm-hmm. all change usually in time. Uh-huh. uh or the consensus understanding of it will change in time uh so uh yeah I'm just interested in what you have to to say but I just think everything's a mystery and incomprehensible uh and uh-huh. I like practice uh and I like peace of mind <laughs> uh-huh. so uh but I'm I'm interested in what you have to say so uh and I was interested in in uh in your sight and what I saw. But you should explain or give us a a taste of it or something.
1: Sure, great. Um, Yeah, so, you know, I think a good entry point is kind of to kind of look at kind of Buddhism 101 stuff, you know, kind of the Four Noble Truths and Three Poisons and, you know, Three Truths and sort of stuff. And so where I would start is kind of maybe a very kind of colloquial, look at the four noble truths, right? So the first noble truth would be essentially, you know, humans experience, you know, various degrees of pervasive dissatisfaction in their lives. You know, you know, obviously it's, you know, dukkha is often translated as suffering. And I think that could confuse people because a lot of people say, well, like I'm not suffering all the time, but if you really, you know, course, my experience is anecdotal, but, you know, I've known a lot of people in my life and I've really not known too many people that really seem fundamentally at peace in their lives, you you know? I mean, it's just, you know, like, you know, think about my neighbors and, you know, you know, you know, many family members over the years and many friends over the years, you know, a lot of people that, you know, just really struggle. And, you know, and for some people, it's subtle, like, you know, some people are just bored all the time, you know, and that's the form of dukkah. Yeah. Some people just, you know, they're you happy and they have a great, they have a wonderful family and, you know, the fulfilling career, you know, fun hobbies, but, you know, but, you know, if you really talk to them, you can really get a sense that, you know, just something just doesn't feel totally right for them, you know? Yeah. And 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 so, you know, I think, and so I, so instead of saying, you know, suffering, I like to general, I'd say kind of like, pervasive dissatisfaction, you know? Yeah. That,
0: yeah. That's it, good. And
1: that doesn't mean that there's not joy in life. You know, it just means that there's just too much dissatisfaction. You know, it's like things are more complex and more um, difficult than they really need to be. And so that's kind of you know, the first truth. And the second truth is, again, to kind of put it very colloquially is, you know, people have that dissatisfaction because they um, have expectations, right? You know, you want, things to go the way you want them to go, you know, you, you crave certain things, and, and that can kind of be broken down further, you know, at a real kind of, you know, you know, fundamental level, you know, people crave, you know, or, you know, head towards pleasure, and are aversive to um, discomfort or pain, right? You know, that's just really fundamentally baked into our, you know, kind of our 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 machinery as an organism and that's something that exists in organisms probably, you know, millions and millions of years of ancestors behind us. And, you know, and, and, you know, if you think about what like the third patriarch said, you know, um, you know, the, I'm going to mangle this, but, you know, the way is, um, the way is no problem. Just don't pick or choose, you know, or, you know, don't see good or bad, you know, it's been, um, you know, translated various ways, but that's kind of what that's getting at is just this fundamental need for pleasure and, um, in kind of aversive to displeasure because you know, at a, a very simple organism, you know, something's pleasure is like carbohydrates, mating, you know, <laughs> protein, right? Or, you know, it whereas aversion is like, you know. It wants to eat me. It's too hot, you know. So, you're like, their their the variables of their environment were very simple. So that kind of so kind of living your life based on those principles makes sense. And even humans, you know, on one level, you know, we're incredibly successful. I mean, there's billions of us, and there's been many billions of us, and so I mean, obviously, we're successful as a, or a species. But the problem is, is that um, evolution does not. Um, select for our happiness, right? It selects for our our fitness and surviving and passing our genes on to the next generation. And so, um, so this, this fundamental need to, you know, dualistic need to chase pleasure and flee discomfort while wildly successful from an evolutionary survival standpoint kind of sucks from an individual standpoint of being happy because, you know, we're, we're always chasing that and um, and which wouldn't be a problem if the world existed exactly how we wanted it to and that you know and that kind of brings you to the, the, you know this, the second truth which is you know, the world's chaotic and changing you know this impermanence you know like so we're just we're just fundamentally designed to never fully be satisfied in our expectations you know, so our expectations aren't met, and we suffer. Um, I think I'm mangling the, the four Noble Truths a little bit. I think I'm combining two. But anyway, but then you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a there's a path to, um, you know, then there's a path, you know, to to liberation. Well, anyway, so you know, how so how would this map to to a um, you know a kind of um, neurobiological view of practice? Well, so it turns out um, the brain is kind of divided not so much by regions, right? You know, so there's, you know, maybe there's a region called, you know, the, um, um, you know, the posterior cingulate cort- um, cortical area or something, right? So that's a, that's a part of the brain. But it turns out the, by the, the way the brain kind of operates and, and is organized is really by networks, right? So parts of the brain that are kind of on various different areas, you know, geographical areas inside the brain, they work together to accomplish tasks. And about, I guess it's about 15 years now, maybe 12 years ago, they discovered that there's one brain network called the default mode network. And it's composed of, you know, and what people kind of say is in the default mode network and what's not um, will vary from kind of definition to definition, but generally speaking, you know, there's two major aspects of the default mode network that kind of um stand out. The first is, it's um, the parts, it's the network in the brain that's active when we're not actively focused on something, right? So if, you know, if you're assembling Ikea furniture, or you're having to navigate an accident in front of you in the freeway, or, you know, um, you know, or you're having to do your taxes, right? You know, so you're you're engaged in a task. So when you're doing that, the default network, Kind of um, largely goes quiet, but when you're when but but when there's not like a really complex task in front of you, or, or you know, or maybe you know, there's not a lion chasing down on you or something, so the brain kind of uses that that kind of downtime to do processing, and the processing that it does is very um, self-referential, and so you know, kind of does you know, two major qualities. One is extremely self-referential. And it's extremely time oriented. You know, it's it's never about what's happening right now. It's it's all about the future within the context of the past. So you can, in that sense, you could say it's narrative, right? Mm. There's a story. There's stuff that's happened to me. There's stuff that's going to happen to me. And you know, sometimes it's trivial. You know, anyone who's sat there in zazen, you know, sometimes the default mode network is like, "Huh, I haven't had Thai food for a while," or like. <laughs> Or, or it could be like, you know, you know, Vander Hollerfield, you know, you, you could arguably say he's the best boxer of all time, you know, sometimes it's stuff like that, you know, <laughs> but, but generally, you know, generally it's, it's planning for the future from a self-referential standpoint, right? Hmm. Yeah. So, and so they called it the default mode network because, um, A, it is the default part of the brain that's running when we're not kind of doing anything very task oriented. Um, and then this, and then, and I, you know, I hinted that the second part of it is that it's it's largely um, built around um, self-referential thinking, but it also does some other things that are really interesting. And um, you know, so so even if you're doing an active task that's self-referential, like someone says, like, "What's your favorite color?" or you know, "Who was your best friend in third grade?" Right. So the, the default mode network will light up on 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 tasks that on active tasks that are self-referential. And, you know, in um, certain parts of the um, default mode network are really focused on um, what they call theory of mind. And that's trying to figure out what other people are thinking, usually what they're thinking in terms of you. And so, um, you know, kind of the social experience of us, of of me and you, like the default mode networks, super involved with that type of cognition, too. Uh, but here's some also interesting things about the default mode network. It's um, it's the number one craver. It's the thing that makes the distinction. This is what I need to feel safe and healthy and happy, right? And so it's, it's, it's. Uh, you know, I mentioned that kind of underlying um, need to, um, um, you know, always experience pleasure and avoid discomfort. Well, the the default mode network is the part of the brain that strategizes how to maximize the that calculus, right? Um, and it's also so that's you know the craving, right? And then it's also part of the brain that um, clings, that that gets addicted to things, like doesn't want things to change that are good, worries that things may not last that are good, worries that bad things are going to come, right? So it, so again, it's that it's applying like the the past and the future, um, and under what kind of underpins all of that is, um, you, I guess what we could call habitual cog- cognition. And so the, the default mode network, you know, and kind of in, in um, working with some other brain regions, but it kind of coordinates this. Is it it creates what I would like to call a map of the world, right? The like, kind of like a, a map of how the world works from a self-referential perspective in terms of what maximizes pleasure and what um, you know, what kind of maximizes avoiding discomfort. And so this so. Um, and, and so as a result um, you know the the so it so basically it creates a conceptual map of the world in, in that respect right and so you know if you think about it a lot of what we've already said that the default mode network does are a lot of kind of the the, the fundamental things of Buddhism you know it's a sense of self right it, you know and in terms of self it um neurobiologists kind of break that up into two levels, which I think makes perfect sense from a practice point of view. They call it one of us, the minimal or embodied sense of self. And that's like, I'm me. I'm right here. I'm a physical thing. If I pinch my knee, you're not feeling the pain. If you pinch your knee, I'm not feeling the pain. You know, you're over there. You have your thoughts. I'm over here. on my thoughts. You know, my body's occupying this space. Right. So that, so that kind of embodied self, um, the the default, some of the default mode networks components are involved with that. Right. Um, And um, in a lot of like kind of non-self experiences, people claim to have either on psychedelics or just from meditation kind of involve that level of the self, you know, like a, a disruptive sense of embodied self. But then there's another part, another self that the default mode network is almost exclusively in charge with. And that would be the narrative sense of self. I'm me, these are my memories. This is what I need. This is what might happen to me. Um, this is who I am. I've existed in the past. I'm going to exist in the future. You know, even more horrifically, I'm not going to exist far into the future, right? So it's this—it's a time-oriented, self-referential thinking, and and, and scientists so call it the narrative sense of self, and I think that's a great name for it. So, so I use it, yeah, in my stuff too. And and it, and as it turns out, um. You know, it's not the embodied sense of self that's the source of suffering. It's the narrative sense of self. At least I strongly believe. And, you know, and I think all the evidence strongly points to that. It's worrying about the future, conceptualizing our our place in the world, making assumptions about reality. Yeah. um, Behaving habitually, thinking habitually. All these kind of self-oriented cognitive functions. These are what's caused suffering. Me – being a physical being here, like the fact that, you know, when I eat, you don't get full. Like that's not total. that's not really causing suffering. And what re- <laughs> you know, and what and what confuses the situation is oftentimes, um, you know, people can have non self experiences. And if you really dive into the scientific literature and also the kind of the, the religious slash spiritual literature, you can kind of see that people are having different types of non self experiences. Some people are having purely um 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 embodied self non self experiences right and, and and you know and I think anyone who's tried hallucinogenics or sat for a long time has these types of experiences you know you know I've been at retreats where you know there's just no difference between me and the wall in front of me there's no separation right or the bell rings and like oh my god I am that bell ring or like you know I've had cr- crickets for some reason get me a lot a lot of times I, I like to have a you know like in a, kind of a deep samadhi state I have a hard time kind of separating from the cricket sounds or you know or you know or um you know you see someone you're like oh that's me you know like I am that person you know like you you know and then you know even things like um like um out of body experiences that that's a disruption of the embodied sense of self you know um, shamanistic. Journeys, you know, that's that's a disruption of the embodied sense of self, you know, and, and and I think a lot of times people have these or you know or they or you know oh my body doesn't exist anywhere my body is infinite you know you know you have all these um, experiences and a lot of people think well the Buddha said there's no self and I just had an experience of no self I'm like oh that's enlightenment right mm-hmm. well you know and if you think back to the Buddha's biography. He was a master meditator, right? And you know, and he mastered um, you know various like really um, advanced trance meditative states. And in what was his conclusion, like those don't lead, you know. And, and those trance states were very much involved a disruptive sense of self, you know. You know, if, if you get down to it, I don't, I don't have the, the names in front of me. I don't remember, but you know, infinite space and time, and you know, all that kind of stuff, but. Um, You know, those are all disruptive sense of selves, but they don't, those don't lead to liberation, you know? And I remember when, you know, I would first have those experiences, I'd be like, aha, enlightenment. And, you know, and I've talked to other people, it's like, aha, enlightenment. But those aren't true, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, not awakening experiences. But then we look at the other sense of self, the narrative sense of self, the one that causes um, suffering, you know, dukkha, that, you know, um, when that drops away, you know that's when there's peace, I believe, and, um, and and like I said, what what often confuses things is those two sets of selves, since they share some neural machinery, they'll often drop at the same time. Hmm. Yeah. Um. And and, it's, and 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 you know and and plus you know a lot of times the the dropping the embodied sense of self will kind of correlate to um, you know jhana states. So if it, you know the you know there's like eight jhana states, you know kind of four primary ones. Um you know, the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth, like, you know, the first two of those, maybe arguably the third, like they involve like really blissful experiences. So a lot of times someone will, will be in a deep meditative absorption and they'll be in like a jhana blissful state. And then they'll, they'll drop the embodied sense of self. Well, since myself went away and I'm feeling this joy, like this must be enlightenment, you know, but, but those are transitory experiences. And from the Buddhist perspective, um, you know, they're, they're, um, you know they're creative they you know there's a cause and effect there is whereas you know nirvana you know awakening exists outside of the context of you know cause and effect you know it's, it's uncreated unborn right and so um anyway so the point i'm trying to get to is if you when you really look at a sense of the self and how the brain creates it it's this narrative sense of self that um that causes suffering, right? You know, and sometimes it's very subtle, like you're at the supermarket and you're feeling bored, you're in line and like the checker's taken forever. Like you left your phone in the car so you have nothing to like, you know, you know, like, um you know, there's no escapist opportunities. You know, so that's like this boredom, right? That's a form of dukkha, Or maybe, you know, like, oh my God, you know, you know, my loved one, lost their job and what are we going to do? You know, there, you know, there's, you know, so it's all this kind of future, you know, you know, like it's a unwillingness to either experience discomfort now or in the future, you know, it's, it's that narrative worry, right? And from my own experience and talking to other people and, you know, if you really look closely at the, all the Zen and Buddhist literature, it's this narrative sense of self that's causing suffering. So the goal is like, how do you, so what do you do? So, you, so there's this pervasive sense of, narrative self referential thinking that's causing all this problem. So what do you do? Right? Well the you think, well, I will just live in the moment, right? I'm gonna to decide to live in the moment. Or I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have this delusive thinking. Well that doesn't work, right? <laughs> you know, I mean like, you know, let's say you know, you know, you have a problem with cake, right? There's this cake there. Well I'm not gonna eat it because I will have a stomachache and I already weigh too much. Yeah. next thing you know you've eaten three fourths of the cake. Or you know you're stuck in a bad relationship, and even though it's objectively true that you're not going to, you know, you'd be happier outside of this relationship, but you don't leave, you know, or um, or you know it's you tend to avoid, you know, I don't know, like doing your taxes, or um, you know, or you know, or you, or you avoid doing your dishes, like so, like all these habitual behaviors and thinking that are causing problems in your life, but you're doing them anyway. Why? Even though you know, you know, from a, from a, um, you know, an analytical perspective, um, you know, the best thing to do, you're, you're not doing it for some reason. Right. Or a lot of times, you know, the way you envision reality is so skewed you couldn't even make a right decision because because the, the assumptions about reality that your brain have made are just false. You know, they're delusional, right? You know, a big one for me is, you know, for years, I thought the world was just full of jerks, right? <laughs> you know, everyone, I mean, <laughs> in fairness, there's still <laughs> jerks out there, right? But, you know, at a very early age, you know, I think like eighth grade, you know, I had like, I had a group of friends in uh, elementary school And we had a falling out like in the summer in between sixth grade and seventh grade. And that was going from elementary school to to middle school. And, you know, so I started middle school with like without a group of friends and there was like a, for about three week period there where I was just kind of friendless in middle school. And that was a scary spot. You know, I got a little bit of bullying and, 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 and then I moved. um, And then when I moved to California, that kind of happened again in high school and really, like, in, in, a to- in totality, there was maybe two months total where I kind of experienced some bullying and some friendless times. The rest of the time, you know, I had good friend groups and close relationships and, you know, and, and people to hang out with and stuff. But for whatever reason, um, well, not for whatever reason, you know, you know, social isolation is such a, you know, in, in, our, in our evolutionary context, being isolated from the tribe, you know, being cast out of the tribe, you know, socially ostracized was a death sentence right if you're living in the Serengeti or something right and so my brain decided at a really fundamental level that my survival was endangered by social ostracization and and that and and my brain made the decision at a some you know my my default mode network at a fundamental level had made the decision that other people are scary and they do things that, you know, and there's always this risk of social ostracization. Right. And so I, and so through so much of my life, I saw the world through those lenses, you know, and so, you know, and I I just see like things that, um, you know, other, you know, I assume that, you know, everyone was kind of not everyone, but often were out to get me or, or maybe, you know, this group is conspiring to not include me, you know, Often very subtly, you know, and often I wouldn't even totally realize I was kind of making those, um, those determinations. But, you know, I just, I was making life way more complex than it needed to be for myself. And, um, you know, luckily through practice, I kind of, that type of thinking, it became clear that it uh, was delusional thinking. And, and I was just making up sto- these narrative stories in my head kind of lost a track of what of the point I was looking No, at.
0: it's good. It's good.
1: But um, yeah, so anyway, so the, there's this narrative sense itself, you know, that causes all these problems. Um, oh, I remember the point. Well, and so even to the point where, um, yes. And so, so sometimes, you know, you have the delusional sense of reality, but even when you have an accurate sense of reality, like eating that cake is bad, bad for me, you, you're still doing it anyway. And why is that? And that's because the default mode network is making decisions based on the payoff of getting pleasure and avoiding pain, right? It's, it, it drives the show in our, in our, in our, in our our, um, analytical kind of Ikea furniture assembling part of the brain, which is called the central executive network. It just, as it turns out, has very little power to control the default mode network. And so, (laughs) so that's why, that's why willpower doesn't work that well you know and that's why um you know or often doesn't work well you know like usually what what was the second thing
0: (laughs) what was the second thing you said oh you said often doesn't work that well yeah often doesn't work because sometimes you know
1: because a lot of times you can convince yourself you know the the emotional payoff to do what my central executive network that is the that's going to give me then the best emotional payoff and so um the feeling payoff. And so you're able to kind of, so sometimes then you're able to reason your way out of stuff, but it's rare, you know, and it's hard. And we often, and so, so this, the central executive network is really crappy at controlling, you know, out of control, self-referential thinking and self-referential behavior, you know, habitual behavior. So what do we do? Well, you know, you look at the eightfold path and what, what, you know, what kind of what were the culminating things and, you know, and um, the second to last is mindfulness, right? And, you know, in mindfulness, though, lots of people define it in different ways. Really, it can be distilled down to present moment awareness. You're, you're being aware in the present moment. And if you look at the underlying um, neuro- neurobiological engine of present moment awareness, it's yet another brain network called the... Um, um, Oh boy, I'm spacing it. Um, the uh, we'll just call it the the attentional network, right? The what? And so the what? The, the attentional network. Attentional. Here, me, attentional. Here, I'm I'm having a brain fart. Let me look real quick. Like brain, paying
0: attention, the attentional network. The dorsal attention network. Thank you. Yeah. The right. What? Anyway, so the the dorsal attention network. Dorsal and just
1: dorsal. That's side, what fish
0: have. You're right. <laughs> Yeah, or is so that um a porpoises? All right, anyway. What does yeah. dorsal mean?
1: Yeah, or I guess dorsal yeah, dorsal is up top. And so um so no wait, so wait, wait.
0: wait. What does dorsal mean? I think it means up top.
1: A top? I think so. Let so. mm-hmm. me look it up real quick. Um the upper side, yeah. Upper or back side.
0: Oh oh, okay. Um, Great.
1: Yeah. And um Anyway, so so, so just to review. There's three networks we've talked about, right? So there's the default mode network, which is you know the the seed of habitual behavior and self-rotural thinking, clinging, craving, you know all the kind of good duca stuff. Then there's the central executive network, which is um, and these can all map to the aggregates, which I won't get into now. But then, but then there's the um, uh, then there's the central executive network, which is kind of um, rational, willful problem solving. And now there's the new one, which is the dorsal attention network. And that's the network that's in charge of present moment awareness, mindfulness, being aware in the present moment. And so here's kind of the fulcrum that this all kind of rests upon. It turns out that the default mode network in the dorsal attention network, self-referential thinking and present moment awareness, they're what scientists call anti-correlated. So when one is active, the other one is automatically shut down not all not entirely shut down obviously but often quieted significantly Mm. and so for example if you're um you know if you're sitting there in zazen and nothing's kind of um grabbing your attention from the external or internal world you know you're not having an itch in your knee or there's not a but a a fly buzzing around your ear or something you know you're free to kind of um to to ruminate and daydream and and think from a self-referential and time-focused, past and future focused perspective, right? But then let's say there's a loud bang in the back of the Zendo, boom, your attention goes to the to the present moment. That's the 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 dorsal attention network. Or um and so um so it turns out these things are anti-correlated. And so since the default mode network is in charge of Self-referential thinking, nar- you know, the narrative self, and that's kind of the the basis of dukkha. It turns out that having present moment awareness or, you know, tuning down the default mode network reduces suffering. It, it, it literally, you know, they can't both be happening at the same time. And so, in, 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 and in, if you kind of look at human behavior, kind, of, you know, you see it all the time.
0: In what you know, human living, behavior?
1: When you look at human behavior, yeah. you're seeing this at play, like, um, it, it, you know, so quieting down the default mode network with the present moment awareness network, you know, the dorsal attention network, You it, know, it, it's, it's a billion dollar industry, you know, television, movies, sports, books, um, you know, um, drugs, <laughs> drinking, dancing, right? All these things that bring you out of self-referential thinking and bring you into the present moment they give relief, right. You know, and, and you, know, and you can even take it to this maximum degree. And when you kind of do sporting stuff that puts people in a flow state, you know, that's the, the maximal, um, you know, non self-referential standpoint someone can be in kind of just naturally. Right. It's, it's, it's almost like a type, it is a type of samadhi, even. Yeah. And, um, and, and so there's all these things people do to kind of, and they're all so popular because they're, they're, they're quieting down the default network and giving us a kind of a moment of peace in the midst of all this, you know, self-referential drama, Mm -hmm. you know, the problem, but there's two problems with, you know, escapist things like this. One is it's temporary, right? The respite only lasts as long as you're doing the escapist activity. And second of all, a lot of these escapist activities either have opportunity costs or cause problems themselves. For example, if your escapist activity is heroin, right? <laughs> like,
0: like,
1: arguably doesn't solve the problem, right? But even, you know, but even something like painting Dungeon and Dragon figurines, you know, you're doing this eight hours a day. There's an opportunity cost, you know, and, you, you know, you're just, you're not really solving the problem. You're just escaping from it, you know, yeah. while you're doing this activity, yeah. right? So so escapism is not a good strategy. So, um, so what... So what do we do, right? Well, remembering that present moment awareness quiets down at a physical level, quiets down self-referential chatter of the default mode network. What we can do is the executive central executive network, which can't directly tell the default mode network to shut up, can indirectly do it by deciding to pay attention, right? You can decide, I'm gonna pay attention right now. I'm gonna focus on my breath. I'm going to sit here quietly, or I'm going to count my breath, or I'm going to do shikantaza, right? You're deciding to pay attention. You're remembering to pay attention. And if you actually um, look at the Sanskrit word for mindfulness, it's actually to rem- – it means to remember. And that's really what mindfulness is, is you're remembering to pay attention in the
0: present moment. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah. That's sort of roundabout. If that if – the, if the root – for mindfulness is really to remember, you've got to, you've yeah. got to take a, a jump from remembering to n- not remembering. It's sort right. of to remember, and, and not to remember.
1: Actually, <laughs> right. And I'll get there. I'm I'm almost there. And um, so anyway, so that's basic mindfulness is remembering to be, um, remembering to be um, mindful. And, and, and this is something that people can use immediate in their lives, right? Let's say, you know, someone says something rude to you and you're kind of ruminating, blah, 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 blah. There's all this chatter. Like even if you've never meditated a day in a life, a day in your life, at that point you can say like, you know what, I'm going to bring my attention to the present moment, how my body feels, you know, I'm going to, you know, of course, one thing you could do is you could go get drunk or watch a TV show. So you don't have to think about it, or you could turn the light inwards and focus on the present moment. And what that, and you, and if you actually pay attention the, the the self-referential chatter goes away almost immediately, right? Yeah. But you know, you still have like all the adrenaline chemicals in your body, so you don't feel better immediately. But being able to kind of cut off that chatter, which almost always is based on false, delusive stuff, anyway, so it's you're not you're not you know, it's not a it's not psychological bypassing to ignore delusion, right? Um, what that allows you to do is you're able to kind of back you're able to kind of calm down you know you're all revved up from a sympathetic, you know sympathetic nervous system that allows you to kind of calm down quicker by just deciding to shut down that chatter.
0: right now yeah. you know what this makes me think of um, I, this is uh, I never thought of it this way, but a very mm-hmm. common bit of advice for someone uh, who's like something happened and immediately that they want to strike mm-hmm. out they're angry. Is to count to mm-hmm. ten,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Yeah. So that is Absolutely. looking at what you're talking, about, That's that's really um, uh, giving the dorsal. What's it called again? It,
1: you're yeah. You're you're invoking the dorsal intentional network to be present while you're counting, and that's yeah. quieting down the default mode network. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. Mm. But, well, you know what this reminds. All right, tell tell me about this. Um, so I would say the, the uh, that impulsive desire is associated with the uh, default network,
1: right? Absolutely. Yeah. So yep.
0: so um, I, you know, have sexual desire and. Uh, it would be very easy for me to have casual sex here, right mm-hmm. with
1: mm-hmm.
0: with uh, foreigners with very easy with I mean there's prostitutes on our street uh, mm-hmm. but all right, so that's one thing that's maybe default, mm-hmm. but then mm-hmm. uh it doesn't really bother me because I just say <laughs> uh lose your peace of mind, you know. Right. That's dangerous yeah. territory. Uh, I've done that, <laughs> you know, I was younger. Uh, doesn't pay off. And then what I do is yes. I say, just pretend you've already done it. And now it's over. And that was good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so that sort of, again, returns me to the dorsal attentive network. I have I have mm-hmm. that a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. And I can really see why uh, older men uh, you know are always getting in trouble and thinking they're attractive right. and lying to themselves and stuff about it mm. um, but anyway uh, yeah so it's the the, the 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 stronger urge is to want immediate gratification and right. the weaker urge is to realize it it just to want peace of mind. Right. Yeah. And but but it dominates it 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 actually so but it it could be, you know I could I could lose it any any day. Yeah. And
1: plus, you know, and at some I mean, sometimes the default mode network makes good decisions. Right. It doesn't always make bad decisions. Oh, like it could, like the default mode network can decide losing my wife and my career and my kids is more painful than. A short term sexual conquest would be pleasurable, right? Right. So, it, like, it could, it could sometimes it makes, sometimes it models reality accurate, you know? Right. And so, so, so a lot of times our, our default isn't always bad, but it just, it's bad enough. Yeah. That there's too much suffering in life,
0: Right, you know? Right. I, yeah. I mean, I think, but but I also think, well, really, there's nothing wrong with it, but yeah. it just wouldn't work out. My wife, she, she. you've got to always say, they'll find out. I uh, I used to say when I was younger, even when I figured it out, I used to say, "No, my subconscious will tell my wife's subconscious right. what I'm doing. Yeah. I won't be able to stop right. it. It's going to happen, and it's going to hurt yes. our relationship. And we won't break mm-hmm. up forever, but mm-hmm. uh, we'll um, will it'll it'll uh, it'll always be there." All right, so go on. All right, so so. Thank you. So the, the,
1: so the stage we're at now is where we, we're taking, you know, kind of we're, we're doing tactical mindfulness, you know, either we're deciding to be mindful when we're sitting or we're smart enough to be able to catch ourselves when we're having an emotional, emotional reaction. We're, we're able to be mindful there, right? You know, we're remembering to, to pay attention, but here's, what's really interesting. And this is kind of where um, uh, kind of um, practice kind of comes in is um, when, so, so, um, so neurobiological researchers, you know, who take brain scans of people, there's something called functional magnetic um, resonance imaging, fMRI. And it, um you basically take a snapshot of what is happening in the brain. You know, they, they measure like oxygen, like where's oxygen being used. Right. And, you know, that kind of magnetizes differently. So they're able to take a picture of it and, one thing they, um, these guys, so whenever they do meditation studies or or really any brain studies at all, they always take a resting state image. So they have something to compare to whatever they're measuring, right? So that maybe they're, maybe it's a study where they're measuring someone, what brain, what part of the brain lights up when you do math, you know, maybe that's the study, right? So they'll do a resting state image and then they'll do a, um, and then they'll do, uh, you know, whatever they're, Trying to measure for um and so you know and so when they were doing these um studies for meditators you know they would take a um a resting state of these meditators and then they would ask them to meditate right and they do these for beginners meditators you know like let's just take a snapshot of resting state okay now i want you to meditate and we'll take a snapshot and then they did it for experienced meditators you know let's take the resting state just so we have a baseline and then we'll ask them to meditate and what they discovered was For the experienced meditators, and and I think that's usually around like eight to 7,000 hours of meditation, um, you know, kind of being that, you know, what they consider an experienced meditator, is that their default mode network, even in the, the resting state, was very quiet compared to the average population. And this is where we kind of get to the crux of how practice works, is these people with all these meditation experience they just had their, their self-referential narrative self, which is much quieter than the average person. Mm. And, and that kind of go, you know, and, and anyone who's been lucky enough to practice years that probably maps with their experience as they've been sitting, life just becomes simpler. You know, this is less drama. You know, you're thinking a lot, you know, you're, you're not, you know, you're, not, you're caught by things less, you know, you come to a bit, you know, emotional baseline quicker. Right. And this is all, and, 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 and here's the really fascinating part is they got to the point you could show one of these researchers, a brain scan of someone, and then they, could, and they were able to say, um, so, so there's another type of MRI. So that was a functional MRI. The, the, the a regular MRI just takes a picture of the structure of the brain, not what the brain is actually doing. And, and you could hand one of these researchers, just a structural brain image, you know, what is, what's the structure of the brain? And they would be able to say, that's a long-term meditator. That's not a long-term meditator. This is a long. You know, they could actually identify the long-term meditators by the structure of their brains. Mm. So, mm. so, what's happening here is, um, is when you're meditating, you're actually reconfiguring the um, the um, the way your brain's kind of put together. Some parts are actually thickened. And I'll talk in a moment about what parts are thickened, but more importantly, the 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 default mode network kind of gets decoupled from the rest part of other parts of the brain, where it's um it's it's not so much in charge of the show anymore. And and so in like and this is probably the most key thing to understand: the changes that are coming to people's life from this you know long-term meditation practice is not because the central executive network has decided to think a new philosophy in life. It's not because they've had philosophical insights. It's not because they've decided to live in the moment. It's not because they've you know, decided to let go. It's not decided. It's not because they've had insight into their childhood. Right. But what's actually happening is their brain is changing shape. It's a lot like lifting weights, right? Like, like someone could come up to me and be like, dude, get bigger muscles. And I, could, and I and I could sit there and I'd be like, okay, I'm thinking that I want to have bigger muscles, and my muscles don't get bigger, right? I actually need to physically lift weights to increase my muscle density, right? And meditation is the same way. You, you know, all the benefits of practice are not there because of any thoughts that you've had. They're <laughs> there because you actually, because you've changed the physical structure of your brain. Right? You've, you're literally strengthening other some areas shrinking like like the fear centers of the brain actually shrink. Um the executive and the and the um and the attentional areas increase. Connections between them change. Um and and so you you're at, and so 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 unfortunately I have to identify another brain network to really fully flesh out this point. So this will be our fourth brain network. And this is the um um oh boy.
0: Um here, uh,
1: um, the salience network. Sorry, yeah. So the so the um, so so now there's the sal- so we have to identify identify. Say, fourth, I didn't
0: right understand now. it. The salience
1: network. Salient. Yeah, salience. And so the salience network, what it's in charge of, is it's constantly kind of running in the background.
0: What scanning- does salient mean?
1: Salient means um, what's important.
0: Oh, yeah. A yeah. salient point. Right, exactly.
1: And, and so the salience network is constantly scanning both inter- inside your body and the world around you looking for something that's important, right? And the way the salience network works is if nothing important is happening, it says, hey, default mode network, let's use this downtime to plan for the future, right? And so the follow-up network says, "Great, blah blah blah. She's mean to me, blah blah blah. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I'm I'm not attractive to members of the opposite sex. Blah 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 blah. You know, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That's so embarrassing. Blah blah blah. You know, right? So it's it's doing its it's, it's doing its kind of self-referential ruminating. But then there's you hear a roar. And Of course, since the salience network is always scanning the environment. It hears the roar and says, all right, default mode network, shut up. Um, uh, um, dorsal attention network, I heard a roar. Pay attention and work with the central executive network to solve this problem. We don't want to get eaten, right? So, so, it, so, it's good. so, so basically the salience network is in charge of um, switching between the default mode network and the um, dorsal attention network, switching between self-referential narrative thinking and present moment awareness um, kind of as needed, right?
0: Yeah. Oh, I can give an example. I want to give you an example. Yeah, you can tell me. All right. Uh, I used to ride bicycle a lot in Japan. 30 years ago, I left Japan, right? And there was this little granite slab. It was about mm, two feet wide that went over a, a drainage, a creek, but it was cement. Mm-hmm. And it was about probably six feet down. And uh, I fell. One, Finally, it happened. And mm-hmm. I lost balance going across it. And mm-hmm. I fell. And I hit hard concrete down there. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really hurt me it, it hurt my shoulder where I landed and I was covered mm-hmm. in blood the 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 the, oh. the the gear thing on the bicycle dug into my ankle I was covered I had a white t-shirt on it was just covered in blood coming down my head but I mm-hmm. couldn't believe it might even have been seven feet down or something I could, I thought I'd have broken bones I got up and what happened was as soon as I started to fall my default network mm-hmm. cut off and I was in a yep. timeless zone that adjusted yep. my body perfectly to land.
1: Yep. That's exactly right. It's exactly the situation. Yeah. Cause, Cause when we're, when we're doing something that we're, doesn't require a lot of mental activity, such as driving to work or um, riding to and from work or you know, anything that's your brain's kind of figured out the default mode network kind of controls all that. Right. You know, like people can drive from their house to work and barely even be ex- aware of anything going around. And because of the default mode network is running things, like right? this is habitual. I don't need, you know, we don't need to, you know, we can use this time for planning. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but the second, you know, as soon as your, your um, salience network discovered that there was a problem, it shut off your default mode network and you're in your, the present, you know, Problem solving and awareness part of your brain took over and you're able to keep yourself from hurt, getting hurt too bad. So, yeah, this is a, this is a great example. And um, so so what, so what kind of is happening here is for the average person, the from the perspective of suffering, Dukkha, the salience network allows the default mode network to have too much of run the show too much, right? In my opinion, you know, as someone who doesn't want to have duca, <laughs> I, I think I think the this network is allowing the default mode network to have too much runtime, right? Um, and with someone with who that's just for an average person, you know, someone who's like quote unquote healthy, right? But people who have anxiety disorders or depressive disorders or you know PTSD or you know, or, what they all share in common. Is that the salience network keeps the default mode network pretty much on, turned up to eleven almost all the time, right? And, um, and and so that's kind of what characterizes all those mental disorders. So, like, the problem is is significantly exaggerated with mental with you know with mental disorders. But even in a healthy person, as evidenced by you know how much dissatisfaction even like a quote unquote healthy person has. The default mode network is given too much of the runtime yeah. but going back to the experienced meditators who have a, a much quieter default mode network um, um, what's happening with them is that the, is the salience network kind of is decoupled a little bit from the default mode network and the whole brain is kind of allowed to um, fire at will so to speak right so you, you have a more balanced, less ossified rigid brain structure that's more flexible and dynamic and um, can respond to events at will. Right. So, um, and so what so basically what was, what happens, you know, and, you know, in, in all across this in literature, you, you, you hear about, um, you know, self fulfilling Samadhi or effortless Samadhi or um, you know, Samadhi that, Creates itself, right? So, so the the underpin the neurological underpinning of this is is the brain is that the body, the brain, the central nervous system is learned to just be you know you kind of have a a new default mode. You have a new default, which is which is mindfulness, being aware, right? Um, and and really, even if you stop there, you know, practice is absolutely worth it, right? I mean, that is wonderfully transformative for a person who's, who's gotten to that point in their practice. Um, Oh, and one more point I want to make actually before I go to the next part is um, so, so far I've talked a lot about, you know, you know, practice is all about kind of like getting rid of dukkha and so forth, but, but there's another aspect, you know, um, you know, and I first noticed this during um, sessions or retreats, right. How just little things could just be so wonderful, right. You know, like I remember, I was in one one retreat. You know, we we're doing our Oriyaki or meal, and you know, I had my Buddha bowl full of brown rice, and I put some, um, you know, some Gamacho, you know, the ground sesame seeds and salt on it. And I was eating it, you know, and I and I just remember, like, this was just the amount of sensory texture and wonderfulness was just almost tear inducing. You know, it was just. So vivid, so amazing. I mean, it left me in awe, right? And and, and, you, and you think about, you know, have you ever driven through Yosemite? You're driving through that tunnel, you get you get through the tunnel, and then you immediately see, immediately see the wide view of um, of the uh, Yosemite Valley, right? Have you, ever, have you ever done that drive? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it just it's just awe-inspiring. Or you're at the beach and you see this beautiful sunset. It's awe-inspiring. You know, just you know, life. In that mode is just so incredibly rich and beautiful, um, and um, yeah, and so that's awe, right? And scientists have actually done a lot of studies about awe, and, and guess what? Awe is anti-correlated to what the default mode network, <laughs> you know. And uh-huh. and so and, and so it turns out when the default mode network is quieted down, and I, I'm not sure they actually know exactly what. Brain regions produce awe. But what when the brain when the default bone network is quieted down, awe is much more part of life, right? So that so not only do you have a quieter sense of self, you know, in a, in a simpler, you know, um, kind of less drama-filled life, just life itself is just so much rich, full much full of rich texture. Because with the quieter default bone network, you're able to just experience awe so much easier, right? And also you know, um, you know, like, uh, you know, a default mode network that, it, remember I said that early on in this, in this discussion, the default mode network is really, like, parts of the default mode network are really, like, um, focused on self and other in terms of people, you know, on the theory of mind, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so the default mode network is constantly, like, thinking, like, them versus me, how are they relating to me, right? So this is uh, what scientists would call an egocentric way of thinking, right? But then there's an allocentric way of thinking where you're not necessarily seeing seeing reality from you as the center but you're kind of seeing the, the relationship between things or you know the or the connections between things that's called allocentric.
0: What, and so when let's the default is allocentric. A L O A L L O yeah. uh,
1: Allocentric. Allocentric. Yeah. And um and so so when when you're in that mode and you're not kind of seeing oppositions of other people that the default mode network is kind of so in charge, so plays such a big role in. You know, you have a more naturally compassionate view towards life because you know you're kind of seeing the bigger picture. It's not a, a real self-centered point of view. So, so 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 far, just a review. You know, quieting down the default mode network either through mindfulness or th- through long-term practice, where you know where um, samadhi and mindfulness becomes default. You get three things: a quieter sense of self, um, more awe, more, a richer, deeper, textured life, and a more compassionate, connected view of reality. Right. And so, so you get those three benefits, right? Mm-hmm. And I'd say even at that point, practice is absolutely like the average person gets there. Totally worth it, right? You know, you know the hellish, the first hellish seven day session you do, you know the all the trauma you might encounter, right? Like all the years of boredom on the cushion, absolutely worth it. You yeah, know, It's just a wonderful place, you know? Yeah. It's just a wonderful place to get your life to, right? Yeah. But I'd say there's actually, and, and I'm kind of wrapping up here, there's, there's one last step you can get to. And and I, and I would actually say that's awakening, right? And so how would I differentiate awakening um, from, you know, a, um, a mature season meditation practice. And, and I think the difference is, um, wisdom, right? Prajna and whether it comes suddenly or whether it's something that, um, you know, it's it's come gradually through practice. When you have the wisdom of awareness of emptiness that, um, um, that uh, you know that the the, the the map of reality that we create is just a useful illusion and is actually not reality um, like actual true reality you know like a true non-dualistic view of reality when you have that wisdom that seems to push things into a deeper level where there's kind of a deeper level of peace. piece and I, and it and I think a lot of times um, kind of at that awakening level where um the brain kind of realizes that its creations are not really real you know where it's just kind of experientially understands that that's kind of where you get like the deeper levels of you know where um um the you know the fears of old age sickness and death kind of melt away the, you know, what
0: the we're, we're, fear of the void the
1: fears of of old age sickness oh, and death fear.
0: you know
1: existential angst yeah that's kind of that seems to be kind of be resolved with right. the awakening, right?
0: You know, something that occurs to me there is the um, studies in uh, LSD. You know, taking psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. One is showing that people who have taken psychedelics, even a small mm-hmm. amount, have better integrated mm-hmm. brains and tend to be happier. The complete yeah. opposite of what was said by the government or whatever back mm-hmm. when I was young. And the other thing is is how useful uh, it has been in helping people with uh, terminal disease to, uh, mm-hmm. like you say, uh, just uh, uh, greatly reduce or even drop away their their fear of dying or anxiety mm-hmm. about it. Another thing mm-hmm. I thought when you were talking about allocentric is that, uh, like going back to the example of having sexual desire, I not only think uh, that, no, I want peace of mind. I think I want my wife to have peace of mind. Right. And, exactly. Right? And then I realized, actually, I want everybody to have peace of mind. I don't want to do anything to reduce mm-hmm. other people's peace of mind. And that involves a certain amount of my uh, default thinking, you know, mm-hmm. I wish I hadn't have said yeah. that or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to say one other thing is that back to Ramana Maharshi, he said, well, well you know, normal waking life, that's dream one. Uh, he didn't say this a lot. He might've said it once or twice. Uh, he said, then when we sleep, that's dream two. And then there's uh-huh. deep sleep. He sort of, and and I don't really believe anything. I said, well, he this is the way he's looking at it, right? He said that's uh-huh. that's phenomenal existence, uh-huh. right? And then the the what's real is is uh, awareness. And how do you find that awareness? Just look at your sense of self. That's it. You know, and yep. that's why. Who am I? is the oldest, you know, we're dating way back in India, go on. Cause right. He said that totally. since you have of I exist is the go into that. That's it. And he said the ultimate mm-hmm. religious statement is from the Bible, is I am that I am. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think, uh, we, we, you know, th- 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 it's very interesting that three marks of existence, and one of them is um, uh, no self, right? Right. Am I saying that correctly?
1: Yeah, totally. Non-self, no-self, yeah. yeah. All
0: right. But then often, uh, if you look at what Buddha is saying at other times, and uh, I can't remember what's Mahayana or theravan but is uh, that you can't say there's self, you can't say there's no self. You'll see a lot of that too, and yeah. um, uh, I, I have a friend who's a Theravadan practitioner who stopped reading Crooked Cucumber because he saw Suzuki use the word self in one of the <laughs> quotes. <laughs> anyway, those are things yeah. that occurred to me.
1: Yeah, and I—I I mean, obviously, I'm a Mahayana practitioner, so I'm biased, but. Uh, one teaching I really appreciate from Mahayana is, you know, the two truths, you know um, yes. From the absolute perspective, you know, from the perspective of, you know, awakened wisdom, there is no self, right. Right. You know, the, the narrative, the narrative, you know, when when the narrative story is shut off, there's only the present moment. There's only this. Yeah. Right. right. There's only the, you know, there's only the the, 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 the Thagata, you know, there's just this, this there's literally this only this, right? But we do live in a reality of you know, we simultaneously live in a reality of objects, me, you, past, future, good, bad, right? You know, and um you know, they're both true. And um, you know, the um I think it's the um oh boy uh the heroic Sutra. I can't think, can't remember Sanskrit name, but um, anyway, you know, a big point of that a big point of that sutra is, um, you know, and, and even in the you know the Sandokai, you know, according to sameness is still not enlightenment, right? Um, you know, in the White Plum Saga, translated as encountering the absolute is still not awakening or still not enlightenment. You know, you can have, you know, people can have moments of no both no narrative self and no embodied self. Right. You know, that's encountering the absolute, Yeah, you know, just this. Right. But, you know, our, our, you know, our ancestors are telling you that's still not awakening. You know, you, you need, you need to work. You gotta get past that where there's no difference between the relative and the absolute, right? you know, and, right. and that's, you know, obviously something I'm still very much working on myself, but, um, so I you know I think Suzuki was, you know, well within the realms of orthodox yeah. yeah, practice to say that there is a self. It's just that's just that's just one of the that's just one part of the bigger picture. Right. You know? But it's and also a that,
0: way of speaking. Uh yeah. pretty hard. Actually the person who wrote that to me used the word I <laughs> yeah he wrote it (laughs) yeah the buddha
1: constantly is referring to himself and other people and you know and he and he talks about you know and the buddha actually even uses the word um true self at one point in the in the theravada you know in the in the you know the the early buddhist yeah it's not that's just not a mahayana um yeah thing yeah yeah so you know and but you know even true self is a you know it's just a skillful mean you know saying like true self or true nature i mean that's that's just a, it's not a thing it's that's just a skillful it's skill, it's it all skillful means i
0: mean suzuki yeah. said yeah. you cannot speak the truth you know mm-hmm. it's you're always speaking half of it he also said you know there is no way to uh enter into awakening through emptiness <laughs> you enter into yeah. it through form and nagarjuna yeah. said to emphasize emptiness over form is better never to have heard of it
1: right yeah and he even said emptiness he even said emptiness is empty you know it, any conceptualization yeah is missing the mark yeah and uh, and, and actually I, and that's a kind of a point i probably should have said earlier about differentiation between awakening and just a mature practice And I really think it comes down to um, a sense of identity, you know, knowing who you are from a wisdom perspective, you know, it's not so much, you know, from a conceptual perspective, but actually seeing like, kind of like, let's say you're like um, locked in a room and you've, your whole life and you've, you know, and, and and the lights are so low, you can only kind of see things in grayscale, right. And you spent like, you know, 40 years in this room and you haven't, you only seen, you know, white, gray, and black, right? Those are the only three colors you see. And then all of a sudden, for the first time, someone opens the door and you see outside the door and you see red and then someone closes that door, right? So now you have the experiential wisdom that red exists, right? Someone could have said, hey, red exists. And you've been like, okay, great, that's cool. But once you've seen red exists, um, you know you have new experiential wisdom, right? And, and I think awakening works the same way is where when you really see, you know, what your identity is, you've seen it. Right. And that just kind of changes everything. And, and again, I think it can be gradual or I think it can be sudden or whatever, but, but that's where I would differentiate, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, the awakening aspect of practice is just from kind of the mature meditator aspect of it.
0: Right. Right. So um, practice, uh, would you say that practice uh, might start with, faith or, or confidence are or trying it out, but actually, fundamentally, it's empirical.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it depends on the person. You know, I was really lucky, you know, where I had those psychedelic experiences where I kind of experienced a lot of, you know, what you could, I guess, call the fruition of practice kind of real momentarily and temporarily, kind of like on a sneak peek basis. Uh-huh. Yeah, me and too. And then I wanted to know. Yeah. Yeah. So then I got into Zen because I had already had the experiences. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't say any of those were awakening, but, you know, they all, but they all showed me that there was something more going on. Yeah. Right? And, um, So I didn't really need any faith. And and, and, and there, I think there was enough in, intuitive sense of awakening existed that I, like, I just always, I didn't really need faith. Right. And so, you know, so I was, I was lucky, you know, and I, and I always wonder, you know, you know, people who get into practice without that, like man, how, how does that work?
0: <laughs> like, well, they've really got. Know. I mean, they've like, got confidence, yeah. faith. They've yeah. got. Uh, well, they also have uh, suffering chasing them.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah, and actually, and as I said that, I, I'm thinking back to you know I've done about you know 50 interviews now. You know, I think I have like 45 of them up. And, you know, on my podcast where I interview um, Zen teachers and senior practitioners and stuff. And one thing I've noticed, I would say probably like 80 to 90% of people, so I'm kind of answering my own question from earlier, kind of what really got them, kind of hooked them into practice was seeing a teacher or senior practitioner kind of in action. It wasn't anything they said or even did, it was just the way they inhabited reality.
0: Yeah, that's true. I
1: want what that guy
0: has. That's right.
1: you know, right. I mean, how about with you and Suzuki Roshi? What, what, was there anything about his bearing and his manner where you just, like, you know what? I want what that guy has, you know?
0: Um, well, I can say that is, like, one of the most common things for me to hear from students of mm-hmm. his. Mm-hmm. But did I think that? Uh, yeah.
1: But uh, you had the psychedelic experiences, yeah, too, I had the, right? Yeah. I
0: didn't really have any. I'm sort of like you. I didn't really have any doubt. I also was raised on a sort of big mind type yeah, right, teaching. Right, right. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, 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 there just wasn't that big a gap. Uh, you know what I mean? Where I was overwhelmed yeah. in his presence. Right. Uh,
1: but but would you say he was evidence at the practice? Yeah,
0: yeah. I'd say he was what, unusual. What <laughs> Evidence of it. But also, I've, I've met so many, uh, known so many teachers and practitioners and holy men and stuff. It's not always obvious at all. Uh, it depends. He was, I'd say that's, that was one of his great powers was emanating, uh, vibes that, uh, people would just look at him first time, Mm -hmm. uh. Uh, uh, people who were skeptical, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, and and go, Wow, I want what he has, or uh, you know, it was more I want what he has than I worship him. Now, yeah, totally. this uh, Don Love Ananda, uh, Doc Free John, Franklin Jones, uh, mm-hmm. you know who that is? No, uh-uh. I think that happened the last time, that's amazing. Uh, uh he had that quality but and his he was you know he had good i think he had good teaching and he was he was uh you know his people are all good they they don't have a a harmful thing like the moonies but, but mm-hmm. read, read the thing I put on com called A Taste of Persimmon. It's three days I spent there. And there's a lot okay. of old Zenites and people there. And I knew people that absolutely had no interest in him, just thought he was a con man, and he just walked by yeah. them and they became his disciple. You
1: mm-hmm. know,
0: he had something think, amazing.
1: That's ringing a bell. I think I maybe have read that on your site. That's, that's ringing a bell somehow.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, th- 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 things are rather hidden. I mean, I don't know how you find it. Yeah. The, the way I can find everything is just by searching uh, in the site search box. Oh,
1: you know, I've lo- I've lost hundreds of hours on your website going down. <laughs> <about
0: it holes. laughs> well, that's something. <laughs> uh, oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, even like he.
1: I hope he doesn't hear this because he'd kind of roll his eyes at this. But you know, even my um, ordination teacher John showed you Sorensen. Um, you know, so we met for lunch, uh, when, when I figured out, you know, I wanted to get ordained and found out there was a priest near me. And so we met for lunch and, and I, and I remember there was one point he said something to me and he like leaned forward and he kind of looked at me, me in my eyes and like time just kind of stopped, you know? And I just, and I just knew like, and there's just some kind of energy there. I'm sounding really woo woo here, but, um, but I don't know, it just, like I just knew like, this is my teacher, you know, this is, this yeah. is the guy I need to, this is the guy I need to study with him. Yeah. And um, you know, and, and it was just, it was just something about his, it was so like, I could, I think without that moment, you know, I could easily have left that meeting and thought like, Oh, he's a cool guy, you know, hope to see him again or something, you know what I mean? But like, um, but yeah, just like there was so so it was, so it wasn't anything we said to each other, but there was just like a moment of, I don't know, recognition or, I don't know, but like that, like that, like I can trace my discipleship to him, like that, to that moment, like that, that second. Yeah, yeah, really weird. Yeah,
0: that's that's interesting. There were people who had the what I call nice man reaction Mm -hmm. to Suzuki. I would hear that. Yeah, Uh, not a lot, very small percentage, but you see, almost everybody that would express that by saying, "Yeah, well, I think he was a nice man," Um, Mm -hmm. and a Japanese priests tended to think uh, we were just, you know, didn't realize he was just another country priest and he wasn't really mm-hmm. qualified to be called a Roshi uh, until, right. you know, maybe toward the end of his life.
1: Um, yeah, and it and it really kind of points to the difference between charisma and presence right you know presence is quiet you know like you know if you're just rushing yeah. through the room you may not you may not notice how somebody handles a teacup you know like i've heard a lot of people like i can't remember who said this but one person says and then she handed me a teacup in the way she handed me the teacup that's when i decided to be as insecure, right exactly you know? like I, like, like that's not charisma like a lot of um you know, like spiritual charlatans, they'll have charisma and they'll, they'll draw people in. And, Trump. You know, like it's, it's dramatic, right? You know, like that's spiritual charisma or even just the charisma. charisma.
0: Trump, Trump has right? charisma.
1: Like, yeah. It, whereas that, that quiet dignity, like just, I think when, so, and, I, and I really think it just comes back to like someone who's present, right? So much, like we're rarely present. The people around us are rarely present. So when you're around someone who's present, that stands out, and I think that's what I think um, captures a lot of Zen students. Yeah, you know, gets they they sense that like oh, oh okay, like like this is possible, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, um, if I could backtrack a little bit, I, there's there's one more point I wanted to make about the, the signs of Zen stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I so a big mystery for me, like all through my practice, is I've kind of vacillated between where I there'd be periods where I would do more of like a like a deeply focused attention type of network, like program, um, sorry. Um, uh, uh, like meditation approach, you know, kind of like real Samadhi kind of genre producing, you know, you, you feel real strong sense of oneness and kind of joyful emotions and all that kind of stuff. Right. And there's other times, the majority of times I've done more of a, um, um, Kind of like what you could, you know, she can toss or open awareness or objectless meditation. And I've always, you know, and, and like a lot of Zen students at first, I think, well, am I wasting my time? Am I doing this right? And it's, um, and it's really interesting. Uh, I won't go into the details, but uh, if you look, kind of look at the, um, the research and, and some of this, I've had to kind of draw some of the lines myself, but um, the focused, awareness meditation um it's much more likely to um you know produce um kind of joyful joy type of emotions and um um kind of um ecstatic you know, yeah static or even just you know you, you get to like the the quote-unquote season meditator stage faster you know it kind of it it makes those brain circuits kind of change a little bit faster right Whereas uh, open, well, I'll call open meditation, you know, objectless meditation, um, you know, or just present, you know, just pure present moment awareness, um, it takes longer to get that, to that stage. You know, it kind of, it, it's, um, you're, you're not, it's, it's less muscular in its way. It's kind of yeah. um, transforming your awareness. But here's the kicker is, um, you know, Dogen always said, you know, practices, um, barrication or practices uh, enlightenment. And, and I, and I actually think there's a little bit of neurological um, support for this. And, and here's why, if you, it, going back to what I was saying earlier, that the, there's various types of selves, right? experience of being a self and the experience of a narrative self, where there's a past and the present, um, um, and you know, and, and you have a narrative story of what you need from the future and you don't get that. So you suffer so forth like that type of self. Is, is highly dependent in, in and I could in another context I could go into a lot of detail behind the the neurobiology behind this, but it's highly dependent on on memory, right? The connection between the default mode network and the memory centers of the brain, that you know, the hippocampus and the pair hippocampus and stuff. Like that's that's you know, if there's no memory, there's no past, there's no you, so you, there's no really no future, right? And so, um, um, so. Um, yeah, you know, so 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 there's kind of no narrative self, self there. Well, here's what's really interesting about open awareness What happens with open awareness that does not happen with focused attention meditation, and that's even for a beginner, when you drop into open awareness, the memory parts of the brain very quickly decouple from the um, selfing part of the brain, and so the what um, the what
0: so decouple from the self
1: part the self. The memory part decouples from the selfing part.
0: Selfing,
1: self, a uh, selfing, uh, the self referential. Yeah, yeah, okay. I just
0: wanted to make the sure
1: the narrative self part yeah. of the brain, right, right? Uh, selfing, I think I invented a word there. Yeah, so, I like um, it. <laughs> and um, and so you so you're and and if if awakening is, you know, um, you know, um you know, the, the transcendence of the narrative self, right. I think you're getting a little taste of it with open awareness because you're actually decoupling the memory from your present experience. You, you're, you, you know, you're, so you're naturally more in an open receptive, in my mind, awake state. And so I, I really feel like it gives, um, kind of, um, I, I found that fascinating to see because it kind of matched my experience was, you know, you know, I, when I went through practice phases where I was really kind of going for the deep focus um, uh, meditation, you know, I get in all these joyful kind of John states, but you know, it didn't really seem to move the needle in my daily life that much, you know, like, you know, I'd be like, you know, during Sashin, I'd be all joyful, but then I'd get back to the world and then that would all kind of fall apart. Right. <laughs> but, but when I would go through practices where I'm really just trying to be present, it is more of like a surrender mm-hmm. that I felt like, that was kind of awakening in in motion, almost from the beginning. You know, it's a, some of it I kind of noticed in retrospect, it, and so I so it, it kind of explained to me the different textures of practice that I had through different kind of approaches I took through time. You know, and I really think it kind of validates the you know practice is awakening uh, um, perspective. I think there's some neurological basis for it there.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Wow. Does that make sense at all?
0: Yeah. You've said a lot of things and, and opened up ways of looking at it. I won't forget.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I find it very interesting.
1: Yeah, it, it, that, that kind of begs the question, what's the utility of all this, right? You know, I've spent many thousands of hours, hours <laughs> searching. Like, is it, like, what, what's the, what, is, does anything good come from this? You know, what, what's the point of knowing this? Well,
0: out? you know, it, in science, you can't yeah. lead with that. Well, you 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 lead impactful. with with let's yeah. look into this. You have the urge to look into it. That's yeah. that is much more likely to be wisdom than saying, mm-hmm. "Well, what's the use of it?" That brings you down. That's that's the default mode. Yeah. Uh, I'd say right. uh, just yeah. following your I urge. Mean. You know, like Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, Emerson, hit your wagon to a start. You know, I think. I think that's what you're doing and uh I think it's um it's beneficial it's good well it's good mm. it, it, it's good for you to do it so that I can hear about it cuz I'm not going to read all that stuff you know so you did yeah. it for me yeah. and gave me uh, yeah. uh at least a um, a very uh uh enjoyable glimpse of it all um yeah yeah,
1: yeah. I, I don't disagree with anything you said, I, but to add to that, I, I think there is a little bit of utility. Um, you know, I think for like a seasoned meditator who already is devoted to practice, you know, there's maybe not a lot of whole out there, but what I found and, and what people have reached out to me have told me is like people who are kind of just getting into practice who are kind of a, you know, they, maybe they've heard some scandals, you know, is you know, some of the teachers, well, you know, if, if all these teachers are having scandals, is this even worth it? what people have reported to me is that when I was kind of, when I was able to kind of lay out the kind of quantifiable evidence that there's actually some purpose to practice, you know, and, and this is, and this is the mechanism of it. They've told me that that's, that's really motivating to them. You know, uh-huh. that, that, that's good. That they to, that, right. And so, so I think real, so I think that's the biggest, maybe. basis. Yeah, for that's good. Uh, and then also I think it's fun. <laughs> I enjoy learning. Yeah, this there stuff you so go. So that, there's utility. But also, um, you know, I mentioned, you know, the whole, you know, focus meditation versus uh, open meditation. And no matter what any of my teachers said, I always had some doubt whether I was spending my time right with the kind of open awareness. But but seeing the, um, even though it, quote unquote, it worked for me, um, you know, it's still like, well, am I, you know, am I leaving money on the table here, you know? In my, is this the best use of my time, you know, but seeing that, you know, like, Oh, well it's, this is the neurological basis of the open awareness, you know, practices awakening that like that kind of erased any doubt I had of it, you know, like, yeah. like, like, I like I really have deep confidence in that approach to practice now. Yeah. Um,
0: well, that's good to hear. Also, that's um, good for me to hear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and one, and one, one last thing I would say is, um, you know, you know, I've had some people say, you know, you know, this is materialist, you know, you know, it talks about gaining, you know, in practice, there is no gain. Like what I'd say to that is um, you know, first, you know, from the materialist perspective, um, you know, again, this is not a complete map of the human experience. You know, awareness itself, consciousness, sapience, scientists have no idea where that's coming from. And and Intuitively, I don't think they'll ever. Right. End, right? I think it's <laughs> an inherent part of the universe, right? Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, and so so there's, you know, and plus I've had, you know, frankly, supernatural experiences that I cannot be explained by any of this. Yeah, you know? me too. Not that those really matter. Not, not that those things really matter from a practice perspective, but clearly there's something else going on, you know, beyond just, you know, neurological processing the reality. Uh, But also I'd say, um, um, uh, you know, from the gain perspective, you know, people say, you know, you're talking about gain, you're talking about, you know, fruition, you know, but practice is, you know, practice is getting away from that. But what I would say, you gotta, you gotta divorce what's happening under the hood from our subjective experience of the situation. Right. So as you practice there, there is something gaining, you know, from a, from a certain perspective, your brain is changing. Your brain is rewiring. You know, you are spending more time in the present moment. You are spending less time ruminating. You, you, you're quantifiably able to, to handle pain better. You're quantifiably able to bounce back from pain to a neutral state. These are all provable, quantifiable things. <clears throat> but from a subjective experience, the opposite is happening. You're you're losing things. You're losing Self-referential thinking—you're losing drama, right? And things are simplifying, and you truly are not gaining anything. So, I, so I, so I think it's important to make that distinction between those two perspectives.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, what you said about drama, then—that—that that I just thought, you know, when people ask me, uh, uh, or something comes up about my wife and me, I say.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, yeah, I love it. It's, a, it's very low drama. That might be the first Great. thing I say, you know. Yeah. And that's nice. as you get older. I think it's easier. Hey, you said you'd. Yeah, I said uh, come visit, and you said not going to happen. What? <laughs> it
1: just I mean, you're you're
0: you're you're not. Um. I mean, actually, I don't want to go anywhere. But I'm a lot older and yeah. you. I don't want to go anywhere. Maybe Singapore. It'd be sort of fun because it's so yeah. modern and everything.
1: It's just a life situation of young young kids and
0: oh yeah, their job
1: yeah yeah overwhelming responsibilities. You know, doing <laughs> and stuff. I mean, it's just yeah, you know, it's hard to get away for a seven day session, let alone
0: yeah trip. Yeah, you know, country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. To me, I look at it. I just say too expensive, and. I don't yeah. want to drive. I don't want to be in cars going along. I haven't had to drive in nine years. It's weird. I you know
1: the older I get, the more I dislike travel. I mean, there, there's just so much. You know, I I live in the you know the cusp of the Sierra Nevada mountains, and of course it's all burning down, but <laughs> at least for the time being. I mean, at least for the time being, there's more within a two hour drive of me than I could ever experience right. in a lifetime. There and, you go. You know, I just I don't see a huge need to like. Travel a thousand miles, right? You know. Right.
0: We, we, we. What I found is, like, every few months, I really want to get away from here. I think it'll be good for me. Good for me. But that's going. Uh, we just did. We just went to Ahmed for three nights, where you can just mm-hmm. you can just uh, snorkel right off the beach. Not great snorkeling, mm-hmm. but at nights, that's uh, a good three three and a half hours away. That's that's mm-hmm. about. <laughs> As far as I want to go, right. and that's right. But, yeah, yeah.
1: but you literally are living in paradise, right?
0: No, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I, I don't.
1: Uh, but but, uh, but by the you know the average society Yeah. You
0: know by by the uh, cheap the uh, the hype life, the hype is profitable. yeah yeah and that yeah. to me the paradise here well there are, the paradise here is is the people mm-hmm. uh is there a lot of social inequality there is there a lot of what social inequality well it's got a caste system but actually yeah, not well, like india not like india you'll have how about america where you know there's
1: you know yeah, yeah 90% of the wealth is in 2% of the hands so Well, everything.
0: they've got that too here uh but not not as bad as America. They have to. My my wife's in a social service organization, and she gets to very poor villages, and they're just bringing them like dental care and uh, access to th- some doctors and stuff. And you know, just there's um, it's still a small island. If you look at all of Indonesia, there's uh, much bigger problems. Indonesia wide. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the greatest problem is one that we won't take back, is progress, yeah. uh, because that's destroying us, uh, and we can't stop it. <laughs> I just posted, I have this cute nonsense blog, and uh, uh, I, I hardly post on it these this day, because I'm trying to concentrate on finishing a book. Uh Mm Tassara stories. But I just posted today Uh, America now is recycling 5% of its plastic. And the the article was, Mm -hmm. you know, plastic recycling is a myth. And then I put in, yeah, I think all the hopeful stuff is a myth.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So um, I I know we need a Tie up here, but is Tazehara stories is that going to be purely an audiobook? Or is that no, be, no, uh, no, 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 uh, no, a regular book too? Yeah,
0: yeah, it will be Does an have, audio you book. Have a publisher, for that huh? Yet? Yeah, you have a publisher for that yet? Well, I wrote Sam Burkholz about it. <laughs> I don't know how long, about eight years ago, and so he immediately huh. connected me to uh, a, an editor at Shambhala, huh. and. Oh, you know, since then I've had a lot to do with Shambhala. But I've just worked mm-hmm. on it just little bits now and then. But it's I've already got a hundred pieces written. I'm what I'm gonna try to do now is put it together. And I, I don't know mm-hmm. how, exactly what's gonna happen or if it'll be any good. I've already read all mm-hmm. the pieces into podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. uh we'll see. Uh I, I'm I'm never confident about what I'm working on when I'm working on it, uh, so. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, not to be uh, ask us or anything, but I, I've loved everything you've done. You know, so, well. You know, thank Thinking Okay and Crooked Cucumber are both just amazing books. I just love
0: Oh, them. thank you. Well, they, I had a lot of help, and they took, uh, they were, uh, that was nine years straight, working yeah. on those two. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I always said... When I started doing Toss our stories eight years ago, I said, this is not gonna be like that. <laughs> I'm just gonna do something quick. It doesn't have to be good. It's with well, a few stories I wanna tell. But Is it
1: uh, is it a um
0: is it a narrative that goes through the whole book or is it a bunch of vignettes? It's both.
1: Yeah, what's the structure of it?
0: I I okay. to to tie it together like say thank you and okay, a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh mm-hmm. and um, but I don't know what will happen. What I'm trying to do now is is simplify everything and just work with it. Uh, but I've been saying that, incidentally, for several years. But I really mm-hmm. think I'm close. The Katrina's going to America <laughs> in a week for six weeks. Oh. And that really opens a lot more time up for me. I, I don't watch anything on any shows or yeah. anything.
1: I'm not going to email you so I want to I don't want to distract you, you finish
0: this. My emails that's you know I'm not I'm not doing blog posts. I'm not I'm only doing one podcast a week that's with a guest. Yeah. Uh, the emails can take hours for me and there there some they I have to respond to them, you know, different things. Uh, people ask me to do things I think I have to go offline and go hide. I don't know what else would work. There you go. Uh, but we'll see. I'm the other thing is once I get into it and it's already all there then mm-hmm. then that if I if I get into it it will take over and other things will cool. suffer automatically. Cool. Yeah. Turn off that default mode. E what, what which is the default mode? Uh, i'll get off the yeah i'll get off the default mode and into right. that and, and that'll be what is occupying my thinking i had to stop music i already stopped music yeah. because that will occupy my mind uh mm-hmm. and uh because i uh produce songs and then i'm mm-hmm. always disturbed by how you know this isn't good enough we got to do this and that and when it's finished, it's all right. I like it. But I can't have that. So I'm not thinking about it. I'm trying to reduce the things that occupy my default uh, mode. Right, definitely. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you were giving me a whole new way to look at all of this. And uh, I enjoy it. I think it's good. And like you say, I think it's helpful. Um, and I like what you said about that, about so many people, you know, we all know the the uh, uh, all this bad gossip, and and uh, I, I tend to be guilty of that. I don't like to do harmful gossip that puts an individual down, but I like to, you know, bring I like to show uh, it's um, you know, just everyday life with lots of problems and uh. There's I just a guy in China just got hold of me wants to do a zoom with his glass, and he's doing a whole thing on utopian writer writing, Uh and he said uh, thank you and O'Kear is a rare exception to utopian Mm. writing about Zen and he talks about D.T. Suzuki and other people how Mm. they present it life in a monastery and. And also the history, I haven't read him saying anything, I just started reading what he sent me. The history of Buddhism tends to be, you know, idealistic and uh, just sort of best case scenario, you know. But the point of the koans, which make it look like, oh, God, yeah, I'll just hear a... Stone hitting bamboo, and then I'll wake up, and that'll be it forever. The point of the koans isn't really to tell you historical truth. It's to give you Mm -hmm. something to work with in your practice, Right? you know? Right, absolutely. and it, 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 it that there were, there were all of there was all this writing and all this stuff in America that that we looked at as, as if this is historical truth. I'm going to get into that, and these things will happen to me, and then uh, I'll have no problems, right? But I enjoy the muck, you know. I like. I'm not nothing discourages me. Suzuki didn't want to discourage anybody. But mm-hmm. you know that was early on. You know he thought it was all fragile. He didn't want any bad stories about being in a monastery in Japan, being told by people he'd sent over mm-hmm. there. He said it would discourage people. Well, I I think that time has passed. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, oh. and I but I think what you're talking about is more important is the approach. Or, or maybe they should go hand in hand. One is to be realistic, get out of this fairy tale idea of what practice and sin is. But the other thing is show people that there, there is um, there's good evidence, and um, that it is mm-hmm. worthwhile. I I think there is, like you said, utility in it, <laughs> but uh, there's um. Yeah. Great value. Ultimate value, I'd say, in it. Incomparable value. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you Take so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye. And keep up the good work. All right. Bye-bye. Sorry. I cut you off. So thanks a lot, Barry. That's very neat. I... uh I really enjoyed it. Oh, oh! I want to say something about our goodbyes there. The uh, for some reason the 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 sound started going out. Uh, His voice started breaking up. So um, and and then uh, when uh, I stopped recording, uh, and it came back. Actually, we both recorded. He did it as a backup. but I didn't need it. Every once in a while I lose one, you know. Uh, and uh, but then it came back and we talked some more without recording it, which was fine. There was enough here. <laughs> uh, so um, anyway, thanks a lot, Barry Crawford. Uh, very interesting. Um, I've been thinking, you know what I've been thinking about is uh, all right, the default network are the default mode in our brain or whatever, Um, that seems to me, you know, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, planning, this and that. And I talked about sexual desire. And let's talk about uh, impulses. And uh, impulses, well, there's sexual desire, which seems to me to be stronger than uh, other desires that are, not really necessary, you know, to keep living. Like if if uh, we're if we're cut off from air, of course that would be a very strong desire, <laughs> and not the sort of desire we need to get rid of. Same with water, same with food, you know. But um, sexual desire is very interesting, and it's to me it's just obvious. It's there to keep the species going. It's, uh, what an advantage, you know? You got all these males running around just waiting to have sex as much as they can. Um, but that's, uh, of course, um, checked by social cultural um, imperatives. And I should say uh, women also have sexual desire. But it seems to be in general of a different nature of uh, but um, I don't know. I, I, I just know vaguely about these things. I haven't studied them. And I don't care to. Um, uh, I mainly just don't want to get out of bounds <laughs> with them. <laughs> okay? Uh, anyway, it seems to me that the impulses, desire, uh, that can't be the same as the sort of thinking about the future, thinking about the past, the sort of running uh, monologue that um, tends to happen with this. Uh, but um, I'm going to talk to him about that more, and maybe I'll get back and report to you. <laughs> okay. This has been a Cuke Audio podcast. I'm D.C. Poobah of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives. Coming to you from sleepy Sonora with dog and bandita, feline Cuchita, and dear, lovely Katrinka. And we're wishing you, and yours, and all of us, a grand awakening. <laughs>